I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today I'm talking to Brendan Quinn of The Athletic about what Saudi Arabia really wants out of Live Golf. So this week, the Saudi-backed Live Golf Invitational Series is holding its third ever tournament, which will take place about an hour outside New York City at Trump Bedminster. Let me say that again. A golf league funded by Saudi Arabia is visiting a course owned by Donald Trump. There's so much about that sentence that is way above my pay grade. And I don't think I'm alone in this feeling. Over the past couple of years and with increasing intensity in recent months, golf media members have had to come to grips with a lot of complex topics. We've had to take crash courses, basically, in sports washing, international oil politics, and the history of the Saudi Arabian government. I couldn't have imagined that these would be the kinds of things I'd be discussing when I joined the fried egg three years ago. And to say the least, I still have a lot to learn about what live means to the golf world. That's why I really appreciated an article by Brendan Quinn that appeared yesterday in the athletic. The article is called live golf and the king sized ambition behind a game on the brink. And it basically takes a big step back and calls on the expertise of some people who have been studying Saudi Arabia for decades. And the result, I think, is a much clearer picture of where Liv comes from, how it fits into Saudi Arabia's plans for the future, and perhaps how the rest of us should feel about it all. All right, let's get to it. Here is Brendan Quinn on what's behind Liv Golf. We should get right into it. Yeah. Because there's a lot to discuss related to your recent article. Why don't we talk about how you decided to write this article? You were obviously an observer of the discussion around Liv leading up to this point. Did you find anything lacking in that discussion that you wanted to address Mm. by doing the research and reporting for this article? So uh, as you know, you know, Half of my job is golf. Half of my job is college basketball. So what I found was, you know, each year I go from the Final Four directly to the Masters and I just take off one hat, I put on the other, and now I'm a golf writer, right? Until the Ryder Cup or whatever it may be, and I go right back to college basketball. So obviously, you know, knowing last summer there was the chatter of live. I think it was all mostly dismissed by a lot of people. But what I really found, you know, me personally was coming – out of the final four, when I went to the Masters, it was just, it's just this constant conversation of live golf equals Saudi equals evil equals sports washing equal, you know, and, and I'm not a smart man. So the, the idea, like, I just felt like I was just kind of playing catch up of, you know, just reading columns that are just saying it is this and it is this, but I, me personally, I didn't really understand 
why? Why, why is it that? You know, like, I, I'm not an idiot. I'm not, I'm not smart, but I'm not an idiot. And I understand the complications of Saudi Arabia, obviously, right? Know about some of the atrocities, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it was really just that. It was just the general confusion in that when I was writing about Liv, I kind of felt like I wasn't able to speak or write with any specificity because I just wasn't confident about really knowing enough about it and really having my, my hands around what this all is, where it came from, and why. Like, I talked to my editor. I said, Let, let's just take the conversation out of golf and out of sports altogether. And let me just try to track down people who, who, who write about the finances of Saudi Arabia or who, you know, just all these things. Where Let me just find people who can actually speak to this and not only have them explain it to me, but then ask them, well, what do you th- like? You're aware that they're in golf. What does it mean? What do you think? And that's where it all really stemmed from. And it just got more and more interesting. And, you know, I didn't know it was going to end up being this 4,600 word whatever piece that ended up running, but it, it took on a life of its own and it was um, highly informative. I feel like I learned a lot, but I still have like questions about it. And I still don't know how I personally feel about it. And I, I don't think that really matters either in terms of my coverage or, or how I present this. Like, I, I don't think my personal feelings either way are in the story because um, I, I didn't want it there because I didn't want a reader to read it through the lens of this guy's trying to convince me of this or that, right? You decide. I'll just lay it out and you, and you can figure out how you feel about it. Um, so that was the goal. That's what we set out to do. I've often found myself using this phrase, Saudi-backed Live Golf League, yeah, in my own writing and in pieces that I edit for the Fried Egg. And I think that that's still accurate. It is Saudi-backed in the end. But there's a lot of complexity that that phrase skips over. Yes. And that's part of what your piece explores and, and what I really appreciate about it. And then on top of that, there is obviously an intended negative connotation of the phrase Saudi-backed live golf series. Your piece also explores why it is that Westerners might feel negatively about that phrase or or why people feel the way they do about the Saudi royal family. And you know, it doesn't provide opinions about that, as you're saying, but provides some information that you might base an opinion on. Now, before we dig into who MBS is, who uh, Mohammed bin Salman is, and what the public investment fund or the PIF is. Mm-hmm. All of these things, I think, are essential pieces of information that people need to have and actually, for the most part, don't understand very well. So we'll dig into that. But before we get there, who were the experts that you talked to and what, in basic terms, have they studied? Dr. Ellen Wald was a an enormous help. She uh, wrote the book uh, Saudi Inc. And, and she really explained the kind of ins and outs of how the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia is slightly different than some of the ones that you might see in Norway or Kuwait. So she was terrific and, and spoke at length with me. Graham Wood is a name that some people might recognize. Uh, he is a writer for The Atlantic, also a lecturer at Yale in, I believe, political science. And he was pretty fascinating to speak to, not only because of what he knows, but he has actually interviewed MBS in person 
twice within the last year. And so, he, you know, he sat with him and he asked personally about Jamal Khashoggi's murder. And to talk to a journalist who sat down and had that conversation, you're kind of just like, you know, made, made me feel like <laughs> just some, some slow on the street. My God. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's cool. Yeah, I talked to like Tom Izzo last week, you know, or, uh, or this golfer or that golfer <laughs> or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was, but, but also was able to gr- offer great insight into just the, the power structure that exists in Saudi Arabia. So he was invaluable. Russell Lucas at Michigan State is a professor of political science, but his specialty is the Middle East and also media coverage and kind of perceptions and Western, like Western views on the Middle East. There's a lengthy quote. I don't like using very long quotes. And there's a lengthy quote uh, from him in this story that that just does touch on Islamophobia and, and things that it might not be in every case, but I think does run through the vein in, in a lot of things that in terms of the reactions that we see toward things stemming from Saudi Arabia. I, I had you describe some of these people because I think it's significant that you have gone well outside the bubble of the golf world to talk to people who have been studying Saudi Arabia for decades and have sources of knowledge and perspectives that are not affected by the echo chamber that golf reporters kind of inevitably live in. And I include myself in that crowd. And it's so informative when you travel outside and talk to people who have other bases of knowledge about Saudi Arabia. And uh, I think that's that's one of the the revelations from your article here. So let's start telling this story about how the Saudi Arabian government got to the point where it decided to found its own golf league. And that story can begin in a number of different places. You could go back 70 years and, and talk about the, the roots of how the Saudi royal family is, is uh, structured and how it does business. We don't need to go back that far. I wonder if you could just tell me about Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's rise to power. How did MBS come to be essentially the autocratic leader of this government in this country? He's the seventh son of the king, uh, the current king who has is still alive. He's 86 or 87 years old. Yeah. Who is technically speaking still the, what I just described, still the leader yes, of, of yes. the country. He, he is technically still the king and, and the ruler in air quotes. However, you notice you didn't see him meeting with President Biden last week, right? So the crown prince is the ruler. He was very much an unexpected pick when he was tabbed as the next ruler seven years ago. And in those early stages, he was 29 years old. No one really knew anything about him. And little by little, um, he gained reputations, good and bad. He does start offering more entertainment possibilities for for the population to enjoy where they don't have to leave the country they don't have to take a flight to london to go to a concert suddenly more entertainment possibilities are coming into the country he was bringing in influencers instagram influencers influencers to go to concerts and post pictures and and yeah like you can call that you know whitewashing a little bit but it was also for that own citizens of of the country like that that 
those opportunities were coming into play. And all of this stemmed from his idea of what was called Vision 2030. Vision 2030 is this long, grand plan of the the country um, becoming very much the center of the Islamic world, a global hub between the West and the East based on its geography, and also a global financial player on the scale of the largest investment funds in the world, Blackstone, uh, Citibank, whatever, right? That's the, that's the space they wanted to get into. And the, the PIF is uh, Prince Mohammed's baby. The public investment fund of, uh, of Saudi Arabia. Yes, it is. It is the public investment fund of the government. It was valued at about $150 million, And it was far more of a, not a nest egg, but it was, it was, you know, the, it just funded the government. Okay. He wanted that investment fund to be a massive money maker for the country, mainly to wean it off of oil dependency. And initially the PIF, we're talking like in, in 2015, I believe you said 150 million. I think it was 150 billion. I said billion. I meant billion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I mean, large, obviously, but talk about what, what it became over, over the next few years. Well, they, they took shares and stocks in, in company after company after company. They, they, they poured billions of dollars from Saudi Aramco into the fund to create companies. You know, everyone's talking about Live. There's 48 companies have been financed out of the PIF over the last six years. I think they took, uh, they're, they're part of 200 different portfolios. It's just grown exorbitantly and... You don't know what's hyperbole and what's not uh, when it when it comes from a uh, a monarch, but it's currently at 620 billion. And Prince Mohammed recently told Bloomberg that they expect it to be at two trillion in 2030. So it's just an unheard of amounts of money at this point, and and you know really capitalized on the pandemic when it happened. They were they were aggressors. They went out looking for companies that were basically unsure of their futures and and willing to get what they could get. They were buy, they were buying low. It was an opportunity and it was a smart play and it it's really set up a lot of things in terms of when you see some of the grand the grandiose things that Saudi Arabia is talking about that goes way beyond a little golf league. Anyone if you google Neom N-E-O-M, to see the city that the country is basically trying to build from scratch, um, you'll realize that live is essentially like you or me throwing a golf outing over, like over the weekend <laughs> at like a local a local muni or something like that. I mean, it's the this KSA is member guest. Yeah. This is nothing compared to that. And something that's really important to understand is that the public investment fund, there is a structure there. Like any other investment fund where there is a panel of investors who are strategizing and and planning and everything goes through that panel to get voted on to then go to the next level of approval and and it has its own place in Vision 2030. But at the end of the day, they like to say the PIF is an autonomous wealth fund for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. 
And that's how it operates. It operates independently. And that sounds good. And it makes sense in theory. Um, and, and that's why the Premier League ultimately had the, the Newcastle purchase go through when the PIF took an 80% stake in that Premier League team. But the Crown Prince is the chairman of the PIF. And at the end of the day, you know, every person I talk to, that's just the thing that they hammer is like, it's a monarchy. So you can say that it's an independent, autonomous wealth fund all you want. But if that finances the government and the government is the royal family and the head of the royal family is MBS, then how can you really say any of that is different? That's what we run into with this idea of when you just kind of use the big air quotes, Saudi money, when describing live, which everyone does. This is what that money is. Like, th- this is that the government took a chunk of money and is putting it behind this goblet. That's different than, say, a Saudi independent billionaire, of which there are many. And some of them are members of the royal family, but they, they operate their own investment funds, and they have shares of Coca-Cola, Disney, this, that, the other. So when a lot of people make mention of uh, Saudi money being so ubiquitous that it's it's in this company and that company and this company, it is in a lot of regards, but, but sometimes it's not necessarily directly out of the government itself. Right. And that's confused. Like it is confusing. And, and hey, if, it, if a member of the royal family, if it's out of his own investment fund, is that different than the government? Because they're the royal family. I don't know. But I thought it was important to try to explain what all that is. So we have some characters on the stage here. We have MBS, who is was initially regarded as a modernizing ruler. And that's that's partly true, right? That is what he's trying to do. But at the same time, of course, as came out with the Khashoggi story, he is incredibly ruthless in his pursuit of his plan. And his main plan is this Vision 2030, which is incredibly ambitious, involves developing cities and and all that kind of stuff, but also involves golf, building golf courses in Saudi Arabia and also founding and running this golf league. So how did golf enter the equation here? So I think as we've kind of established, part of Vision 2030 was a tourism play. And you can't really be a huge player in the global economy if you're not open to the world. So you do need to find areas that are presenting Saudi Arabia as a, a country that hosts golf tournaments, that hosts concerts that influencers are going to, okay? And so if we're going to introduce another character, uh, Yasir Al-Rumiyan. Al, Al now, I probably butchered it, and I and I apologize that I've heard this name five different ways, and I, I'm not sure yeah. which one is I correct, always but. I always heard it in my head as Yasser Al-Rumiyan, which is probably completely incorrect as well. But uh, that's, that's how it looks like on the page to me. I, I do apologize. But the former personal banker to MBS and was then made basically the governor of the PIF. So he went from being uh, MBS's personal banker to the governor of the PIF. He loves Goff more than anything in the world and had MBS's ear 
and was able to promote Goff as having a major place in the long-term plans of the country. And with that comes kind of being a a pillar of Vision 2030. So, you know, th- there were plans to grow the game. I will use the expression to grow the game in the country, create, you know, junior opportunities, build more courses, bring in pro events, et cetera, et cetera. But under the surface was Live Golf. That's where it came from. I think you'll find this interesting. In the reporting process, Garrett, like, I'd so, so the first four people I talked to, so I named three of them and one I can't name, but the first four people I talked to, all of them separately said, without a leading question from me or anything like that, the Public Investment Fund and Saudi Arabia and the Crown Prince view something like a golf league as representative of their power and their ambition. It's something that a global, that one of the wealthiest global investment funds owns, that this is what they are capable of creating. And I think we both agree they did find a vulnerable sport here, obviously. But when they described it that way of of kind of those early roots of, of golf, but then also like create a whole golf league and that it is indicative of a powerful country, that this is what is able to be created out of the Saudi kingdom. And that to me was really kind of the first time I heard it presented that way. And I don't know if you have or other people have, I'm sure, you know, this probably isn't that revolutionary of a thought, but they they all addressed the idea of sports washing. And said, like, I know that everything that gets written is just about sports washing. And yeah, it could be. Like, they certainly want to improve their image. They certainly want people to to not think of of Saudi Arabia and automatically thinking thinking about someone being beheaded, right? Of course, they're trying to change that image. But the the notion that it's just sports washing to them, to these experts, was just too simplistic. Where they're like, yeah, it's great. They they can change their image, but. The, the kingdom is not thinking they're going to be able to create a golf league and trick people into suddenly imagining Saudi Arabia as a different place. Or suddenly that Steve from Iowa is going to pack his golf clubs and fly to Saudi Arabia for a vacation because he now imagines something totally different. Like, it, it's, it, they do want to improve their image, but that's not where, that's not why that this is a thing. It is a power play from a incredibly ambitious, and powerful regime. And you tell a story in the article, you open up the article by telling the story of MBS buying this Leonardo painting of, of somewhat uh, dubious origin. You know, there's some question as to whether it's really a Leonardo and further questions about whether it's actually a good Leonardo, but it sure was expensive, you know, it was half a billion dollars and now he has it. And so is live golf. In other words, another painting, another very expensive painting that can be hung in the room of an even more expensive yacht. Yeah. I mean, and you could even, you can even draw that right down the line and say, is someone, is Phil Mickelson a Leonardo? Is, is Dustin Johnson a Leonardo? (laughs) Things that, you know, you, you get to display, you know, Mm -hmm. look at what we have. Right. I think there's weight to that. I I think when it was explained that way to me, um, and that gets back to our kind of our original conversation of like, just 
not feeling like you confidently. I understand the premise of sports washing, but I never under really understood like, okay, well, how would that work? Like, how would just creating a golf league? What what does that do? Like, how how does it sports wash? You know, uh, if it's just a generalized PR play, it might not make much sense. And I think I'm not totally convinced that what the experts were describing to you was not a kind of sports washing. Agree. But it certainly adjusts our understanding of what sports washing is or or introduces some nuance to the concept. All right. So I think the general understanding of sports washing is that the kingdom is just doing this as a, you know, this kind of vague PR project to make the average Joe in middle America think, oh, maybe Saudi Arabia isn't that bad. But I don't think that was ever really the intention to win over the hearts and minds of middle America. I'm not sure that Saudi Arabia cares about that at all. I don't think so. What they care about, and when I say Saudi Arabia, I'm I'm using that as a term to refer to the royal family here. What I think the Saudi royal family and MBS care about is their image among other global business and political elites, right? They want to improve their status in that community, build connections in that community so that they can diversify their wealth outside of oil. And so part of what Liv is doing is flexing a little bit of muscle, you're saying, to those people. That's the audience. The audience is other billionaires. Look look at what we've got. And so that's that's part of what this play is. Is that characterization accurate? I agree with you. I agree. Yeah, I think that that's I think that a lot of that's on the nose. There's a seriousness to doing something like this, you know, like, oh, man, wow. You know, because and if you look at, you know, we're only looking at it in the here and now as well. You got to realize, you know, speak to somebody who has a, a real understanding about the PIF and they don't talk about anything regarding what live looks like right now. They're only talking about what the aspirations would be three and five years down the line when they envision having $500 million individual ownerships for teams or billion dollars being spent on each team being played, right? They eat the 12 different teams that, that make it up that they're going to be valued at a billion each and there's going to be a massive media rights deal. Well, and suddenly now, you, you look along those lines, that's a real, that's a sports league. I mean, it's a real league if, if it gets to that point. And it's something unlike the world has ever seen. And it would rep, it would be pretty revolutionary. And that would all tie back to Saudi Arabia and, and, and the public investment fund and what they were able to create out of it. Like, and it could be highly profitable if that is the case. Cause there is this other notion out there that like, they don't they don't need a return. It doesn't matter. They have so much money, thus this thing can just bleed money and no one will care. That I think personally is patently false. I, I do not believe that. Um there are conversations with people that I had who who can't be mentioned and think that really solidified how I, I, I feel about that. That like this is not an investment fund. Investment funds are built to make money. And that is going to be what the end game is here. And they will spend a ton of money until they get to the point of making money where you wonder if it's possible to ever even, you know, get solvent. 
However, this is not just like a, a slow bleed of just letting Greg Norman go and piss away billions of dollars just to flip double birds to the PGA Tour. It is not that. There is there is no way that it is that. Greg Norman may think that's what he's doing. He very well could. <laughs> the, but the but but of course the the people behind the PIF expect this to ultimately turn a profit. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Golf Genius. What is Golf Genius? Well, it provides software solutions to over 10,500 private clubs, public courses, resorts, tours, and golf associations in more than 60 countries. Golf Genius also offers innovative cloud-hosted software tools that save golf professionals time and help them deliver great golf experiences. The company's best-known product is Golf Genius Tournament Management. This is the industry's leading tournament management software. We at The Fried Egg actually use Golf Genius Tournament Management to manage all of our events, and we've been really impressed by the comprehensive functionality and all the cool features. Another benefit of Golf Genius is its excellent customer support. The company is laser-focused on customer success and has built a responsive, knowledgeable support team. This team includes PGA professionals who understand the challenges faced by club pros. So if you set up and manage golf events and would like to save a lot of time and hassle, you have to check out Golf Genius. All right, back to the episode. So, okay, so we have some adjusted understanding of what is trying to be accomplished with this league, that uh, they are trying to build a business and that they're not doing so just as a, a simplistic, you know, reputation laundering play that it's more directed at this kind of uh, flex <laughs> that will register with other billionaires and, and kind of bring, you know, global business elites into their circle a bit more. That would be the understanding that I got from your article about what the intentions behind live golf are. Now, something that's interesting that your article addresses is how live has already brought other people into its orbit. And two in particular that would be interesting to focus on are Greg Norman and Donald Trump. So this week, a tournament is being held at a Trump course, and we can talk about that. But first of all, Greg Norman, why was he such an obvious choice for Live Golf as its CEO? Yeah, I mean, I would imagine listeners here by, you know, are aware of, of 1994 and Greg Norman trying to put together the World Golf Tour that would have been very similar. You know, it was a very similar blueprint of 40 players, made-for-TV events, massive purses. It was very much that, hey, the top guys want more money, deserve more money. This is a way for them to get more money. He was not the only one who wanted that at that time, by any means. He's just... Uh, about as ambitious as the Saudi government <laughs> and, and and thinks along the scales of like, I'll start my own golf league. I'll, I'll, I'll raise the money. I'll get the TV deals made. I will also reap all the benefits of it, you know? And, and that's just the way Greg Norman is wired. But, but to your question, yes, he'd done this before. And I probably always had in the back of his mind that he'd love to take another shot at this and that, it could work. And this is a guy who has made 
created a small empire out of real estate and out of golf architecture and and then all these other entities, a clothing line, restaurants, his own brand, wine estates, you know, like he's just incredibly ambitious and and I don't know. I thought Kent Babb's profile was very interesting uh, about the roots of of maybe where some of that comes from and it gets into his father's relationship. I, you know, y'all can read that. But, um, you know, he was a natural ally in this play and being a person who is forward facing because what's interesting is if you look at the Newcastle purchase, right? Well, they bought something that existed. That was a team with a fan base and a board of directors and a full roster. The, the public investment fund put up the money, takes a controlling share, and it puts one of its leaders onto the board of directors. And that's really the Saudi presence there. Well, in the creation of Live Golf as something that is coming from nowhere, well, who's going to be the face of it? The Saudis already knew what they were going to be running into in terms of perception-wise and in terms of a very uphill climb in in dealing with the backlash, not only because they're challenging the tours, but all the other reasons that we've discussed, right? Like they went through this with Newcastle of the, the hyper-reaction that it being Saudi money in air quotes, they dealt with the reaction with the Newcastle purchase. So they knew exactly what was coming here. Well, okay, what are you going to have the leaders of the public investment fund out there, you know, holding press conferences and being representative of what Liv was trying to do? You know, probably would one will avoid that. You know, I, I don't, let's not kid ourselves, right? Put, put Greg Norman out there, famous golfer. Okay, well, now that makes a little bit more sense. That was the fit. And you have Greg Norman saying, I don't take orders from MBS. Right. I mean, he, he will just say anything at, at this point. I mean, some of, the, some of the quotes are just plainly, you know, just preposterous when, <laughs> when, you, really, when you really break it down. And, the, you know, him saying that um, the, the, we're independent and I do not answer to Saudi Arabia. I, okay, man. If you can say that out loud, go nuts. Um, a lot of people who know a lot disagree with you. And, and it, yeah, so it's clearly incorrect, but that is certainly the tactic that he's using and that Saudi Arabia is using, trying to present live golf as, as something that is separate. It is. And if you, you know, something that's interesting, and I kind of, I, I, I maybe wish this was in, in the story, but it just, the thing was so long. But, you know, if you look at every press release that live sends out, it says live golf is owned and operated by live golf investments whose vision and uh, mission are centered around making holistic and sustainable investments to enhance the global golf ecosystem and unlock the sport's untapped worldwide potential. And then you go to about Live Golf Investments. Live Golf Investments is a newly formed company with group companies in the USA and UK. Its purpose is to holistically, I like that word, holistically supercharge golf on a global scale to help unlock the sport's untapped potential. Greg Norman is the first and founding CEO of Live Golf Investments. Then you get to PIF, one of the world's largest wealth funds with a diverse international investment portfolio, is the majority shareholder in Live Golf Investments. Okay, so like let's break that back down. Live Golf claims that it's bought that it's owned by Live Golf Investments. Well, Live Golf Investments is owned, it, it's not a thing. Live Golf, Live Golf Investments is just Live Golf, and Live Golf Investments is owned by 
the PIF, which is the Saudi government. So I don't care what Greg Norman says, you know, and when I talk to the the, the people that I talked to for this story, you know, and, and like I've read them some of these quotes. I read them Graham McDowell's quote about tenuous connections and they all just kind of, you know, they just laughed. It's like, hey, man, you know, if these guys want to convince themselves otherwise, that's fine. You know, and they, they can take this money and they can convince themselves that it's that it's not this or it's not that or they don't care. And that's, you know, whatever. That's your prerogative. But it's not true just because you say it out loud. But at the same time, the setting up of these public facing layers between Live Golf and the Saudi royal family, just that kind of rhetorical gesture, it, it contributes to the argument I think that you're making in the article that this is not simply a kind of general PR play. Because if it were sports washing understood in the most simplistic sense, then you would assume that Saudi Arabia would be out front saying, look at us. We are Saudi Arabia. Yes. This is our golf league. Look how good it is. But they've actually set up all these layers between Live Golf and the Saudi royal family, obviously trying to kind of make that connection a little bit harder to perceive for the general public, which means that they're probably up to something else. They're not appealing to the general public. They're sort of in conversation with another segment of the global population, which is the, these these business circles, people who know what's behind Live Golf and are aware that it's the Saudi royal family behind it ultimately. But that's certainly not everybody in the world who's who's aware of that. If you if you currently look at the organizational flow that's available on the Live website, you see no Saudi presence at all. If you there is no about us tab. There's no how great is Saudi Arabia. There is none of that. There is not even an ad for Gulf Saudi, which is like the tourism branch essentially of you know, they want people to visit uh, Saudi Arabia and play golf and spend money the same way people do in Dubai. But there is no ad for Golf Saudi on the Live website. There are not giant Golf Saudi signage pieces behind every tee box at Live events. You're right. And I was confused by that because when you look at like the Newcastle purchase, and I, I, I know I keep coming back to that, but it's, it, it is an interesting kind of mirror to look at this through. Yeah, the lessons um, learned from that are clearly informing this this venture. You know, they, they made a third kit uniform for Newcastle, which is essentially the Saudi national uniform, the green and white uh, of the Saudi national team. And I mean, people lost their minds. Right. And, yeah. and you know, like, it, it's, I, I, I don't, I don't, I think they learned from it. I don't know if like, so how many of those lessons were then, you know, taken into, into live, but you know, I was told by one person like, ah, you're, you're probably reading too much into that. And other people are like, well, or it's because they want it to be a professional golf league and not a Saudi professional golf league. Those are two different things. I mean, it's certainly, yeah. Having, having covered a live event, I, the, the presence of Saudi Arabia branding at live Portland was non-existent. The branding of live LIV 54, et cetera, was ubiquitous. So that that's what that event was conveying to the public, which is interesting and I think informative about the tactics of the PIF and the Saudi royal family that are that are going into this. They're they're quite subtle. If Citibank decided that 
or, or Blackstone decided it's going to take this money. It's going to take $5 billion. It's going to start itself a golf league and take over. Which was essentially what the premier golf league was kind of proposing to do, right? A big, you know, hedge fund was basically like, hey, man, we can buy golf. Yeah, exactly. And, and so if you're doing that and you're going to try to make it a global tour, well, you're not going to make it the American Blackstone golf tour, you know, like it's, you're not going to have American flags out and uh, when you're playing overseas or, or whatever. And yeah, I think part of the, the lack of Saudi presence does speak to that. All right. So last topic I want to dive into, um, uh, a bit nervously is the connection with the Trump organization. Uh, Tell me the story of how, Golf Saudi became involved with Trump and the Trump family. After Jared Kushner left uh, the administration, uh, which I believe was in the final year of Donald Trump's presidency, he created his own private equity firm, uh, Affinity Partners. The public investment fund was approached and, you know, there's been previous relationships between Saudi Arabia and Trump. And like, that's like a book in and of itself. So this is like the super simplistic, very recent kind of talking point, I think, that that you can draw a single kind of thread through a little bit. So the New York Times, which is full disclosure, the parent company of The Athletic, who I work for, New York Times reported, this was reported in April of this year. There's a link to the story in, in mine, so I'd encourage people to read it because it is far more informative than than anything I can present right now. But um, essentially, the Times reported that it was Prince Mohammed personally who prompted the public investment fund to take a $2 billion stake in Affinity. I believe that Affinity was last valued at $2.5 billion, which means that the PIF hold, holds $2 billion of the $2.5 billion in that <laughs> private equity firm. <laughs> Kushner's obviously the son-in-law of the former president and the Times, you know, very specifically, I think one of the big pieces of news out of that story was that the Trump administration's defending of the crown prince after the CIA concluded that he had approved of the 2018 uh, killing of Khashoggi stemmed from this, stemmed from Kushner kind of downplaying it if that's the right verbiage for that. You you can draw these lines. They're 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 kind of I think pretty black and white because now you have Live which is financed by the public investment fund heading to a course owned by Donald Trump and is going to do so again in October and you have Donald Trump out in front encouraging PGA Tour players to defect to Live and saying that they should take that money and being critical of the PGA and I'm not sure Sometimes I don't know if he's talking about the PGA Tour or the PGA of America. Not sure he's. And I don't know if he knows yeah. <laughs> whether he's talking about the PGA Tour or the PGA of America because obviously this event's at Bedminster. Bedminster was going to host this year's PGA Championship that was stripped after the January 6th insurrection. The PGA Tour was moved to Southern Hills. Trump's pissed about that. Now his event is hosting this, which is financed by Liv, which is financed by the public investment fund. And kind of round and round it goes. And uh, uh, Another uh, part of the backstory here, <laughs> aside from the PGA Championship moving away from Trump Bedminster, was the PGA Tour a few years ago going away from Trump Doral. 
and establishing the uh, the Mexico Open, which was held for a couple of years outside of Mexico City. And and so perhaps that's part of this animus toward the PGA of America slash the PGA Tour. It seems like those things are kind of to uh, at least in the way that Trump has talked about them, one and the same uh, on on his social media platform, Truth Social. This is what he said. All of those golfers that remain loyal to the very disloyal PGA in all of its different forms will pay a big price when the inevitable merger with Liv comes and you get nothing but a big thank you from PGA officials who are making millions of dollars a year. If you don't take the money now, you will get nothing after the merger takes place and only say how smart the original signees were. Um, the P the disloyal PGA in all of its different forms. That's kind of like a hand waving uh, PGA of American PGA tour, are the same thing. Now, just today, I believe I, I'm I'm not personally on Truth Social. Uh, I, I no, know. okay, um, yeah, I know that's that's where things are happening now, I guess. But on Truth Social, uh, Trump tweeted, "Just arrived in Bedminster for the big live tour live tour golf tournament. Uh, record money to winners. Great excitement. Come on out Friday, Saturday, or Sunday to watch the great play by the best players. So, so you know, promotion of live." And so I guess the the larger question here is, do you think this was part of the Saudi royal family's calculus that clearly a golf league of this kind would appeal to Donald Trump? Donald Trump has been very open for decades even about his desire to host a major championship at one of his own golf courses. He really wanted this and he got rejected this year. And now he gets to hold these live events. Do you think the Saudi royal family is maybe thinking this guy's going to be president again between 2024 and 2028? It might be a good move for us to establish a business relationship with him because that would allow us to have some influence in what might be potentially a second Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all in, incredibly speculative. I mean, it would be incredibly shrewd to have that much foresight. Yeah, that would be attributing kind of genius levels of uh, of planning you know, to. <laughs> however, um, it does make sense for the relationship between the Trump Foundation and the Saudi government to exist, even beyond live or anything like that, but for course construction in the kingdom for you know, having relationships maintained in U.S. political circles for hotels. I mean, like, you know, the, the Trump's reach is so far in, in golf. And, you know, we know that it goes well beyond um, owning two courses that they've continued to expand that. They've sold a lot, but they've also, you know, they're obviously a player in that space. So it does make sense for the relationship to exist beyond any expectations of a second term or beyond knowing that he's going to use his clout to throw it, you know, try to knock the PGA Tour off its moorings. Like, I think the same way Greg Norman is a natural ally for Liv, I think Donald Trump is a natural ally for Liv. All right. I think we've covered a lot of ground here, uh, said some things that uh, people are going to need to chew on a little bit. Uh, again, I want to recommend that people read your article. It lays things out in a, in a very clear way, uh, in a way that I think has not quite been done in golf journalism uh, to this point. 
Uh, so thank you very much for doing that. And thank you for uh, spending some time with me today, Brendan. Appreciate it. Always appreciate coming on and, and the conversation. And, and, I, and I thank you for the kind words about the story, Garrett. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. One quick thing, if you aren't signed up for the Fried Egg newsletter, you've been missing out lately. We've had a lot of good stuff in there, including the start of a series by Andy Johnson on his first experience with Scottish golf. To get the Fried Egg newsletter in your inbox three times a week, go to thefriedegg.com and hit subscribe. See you next week, and thanks for listening.